Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation, also host of the Finding Genius Podcast. Today I have uh, Timothy Holine. He's an Associate Professor at Loyola University. Uh, He's an aquatic ecologist. We're going to talk about uh, what he calls the trash ecology. So, Tim, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, Hi. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm hanging in there with all of our inside uh, work and <laughs> being trapped trapped in the office. Right. So tell me, what is the uh, the trash ecology? What does that mean? Yeah, well, what we're interested in doing is really measuring the, the sources, the movement, and biological interactions of trash uh, when it enters the environment, um, specifically when trash enters our rivers and lakes. Okay, well, and trash is uh, predominantly what? Is it plastics? Is it fertilizers? Like, what is it? Yeah, when I say trash here, I'm really thinking about garbage, if that helps. So we're thinking about all of the synthetic material that we discard. So yes, it's plastic, it's rubber, it's metal, um, it's textiles. Um, Whatever you uh, can sort of see and observe um, on the ground or on the sidewalks or in parks that you might call trash, all of that, all of that refuse. Of the trash that finds its way into, you know, rivers and streams, what is it made of? Is there a is there a predominant part of it, or is it a huge mixture of things? Uh, the trash that we find in rivers and streams is is really a mixture of materials, um, and the same is true for the kinds of trash that people find on the on um, ocean beaches, or um, in parks, or or even on the streets. Um, we often divide it by material type, so this is um, plastic metal and you know uh, we, we do find lots of different kinds of materials but a, a lot of what we find is um, categorized as plastic uh, metal and textiles okay gotcha so when when the trash makes it into these bodies of water does it travel very far or does it tend to settle to the bottom pretty quick well uh, that's exactly one of the questions that we're trying to measure so we've uh, been out trying to determine the, the um, way in which trash moves around. And again, it's a diverse um, kind of set of measurements depending upon material types. We find that some material is pretty stable. Um, and you can imagine this is predominantly the heavier kinds of trash that gets into the rivers. This is things like um, metal, um, uh, construction debris, and, um, and the fabrics. They're, they're heavy, they're waterlogged, and they stay. Some of the lighter stuff and some of the smaller stuff can actually travel pretty far. So this is um, things like um, uh, plastic in particular, other kinds of buoyant trash that can river and go um, you know, several kilometers or several miles downstream at a time. So the lighter material, does that end up in oceans eventually when rivers river is dumped there? Yeah, that's another one of the, the really the key questions that we want to know. Um, it can either sort of stay in the river, uh, it can go downstream, or um, it can uh, sometimes be buried in the sediments. And so from the perspective of, of uh, marine biologists, 
um, they often uh, want to know kind of uh, how rivers act as a pipe. That is, um, uh, a its way into a river and then ends up in the ocean. But from our perspective as, as um, scientists who study streams and rivers, we understand that um, rivers, lakes, these are ecosystems that actually retain a lot of material and um, that plastic and other kinds of trash when it's retained in a river can actually be transformed and interact with aquatic life in the freshwater ecosystem as well. So we've been trying to quantify um, the amount of river, sorry, the amount of trash that gets retained in the rivers and the proportion that's exported downstream. And we also want to know what happens to the material when it's in the river. And we don't have a great answer for that yet. We're still um, uh, in the process of taking those measurements. But one of the things that we've really uh, been able to document is the, the pattern by which trash moves downstream. And the pattern it moves downstream is through um, a series of kind of start and stop sequences. Um, and this is really tied to how water is moving off the landscape and into rivers. So when it rains, when there's floods, we find lots of uh, uh, litter is suspended, it's mobilized, and it's in motion. But as floodwaters start to recede, um, litter is left along the um, sides of the streams, it's left along the bottom of the streams, and it stops, and it can stay in place for quite a long time before it's moved again. Could a flood or once the waters recede from a flood, could that be a very good opportunity for, you know, people to go and clean up the banks of a river? Maybe it would disgorge stuff that's been trapped there. Yeah, exactly. When we um, uh, are collecting litter, oftentimes the, the, the periods where we're really able to get into the river is when the floodwaters have receded. So, so we know um, where the uh, spots are for litter collection. And this is along um, any kinds of interruptions in the flow. This is like a, a bridges or other structures that are um, spanning a river, um, vegetation or um, turns or bends in the river. All of these sites act as um, litter collection spots. And so when we work with volunteer groups, we often direct them to those locations to try to maximize kind of their time and, and really the efficiency of litter collection uh, because we, we understand that that's where it sticks. Have you personally taken trips to the riverside to, you know, evaluate the trash that's there and look at the condition of it after it's been in the river for a while? Uh, have I have I personally done that? Is that what your question was? Yeah, have you gone to the riverside, you know, various streams and literally seen this in person and, you know, collected samples? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, hundreds of times. You know, the work that the work that I do with um, uh, my students is is really field based. So we're out um, in the river, in the streams. We we do um, all sorts of different ways of of, of getting out and collecting litter, um, depending upon stream size. When we're working streams, we we wade in the in the river with with um, uh, boots and collection materials. Um, these include nets and bits. Um, and booms. When we're working in larger rivers, we'll, we'll be on a boat, um, a canoe, a kayak, or a, um, a motorboat, and we are um, getting around to the different places to collect litter, either by hand where possible or with um, um, nets and materials. So what have you observed being at the riverside in person that you didn't know before you did it? What's, uh, what do you only know from being there? Yeah, well, uh, I've, uh, I've spent so much time collecting trash out in the environment that it's, um, 
it's kind of become second nature. But I think one of the things that um, people are surprised by when they come along on our trips is just how much trash is present. You know, you might look at um, a lake shore or look at a river and, and think oh, there's not much trash there at first glance. But when you get in and start looking, um, there's a lot more than is obvious at first. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the litter tends to kind of co-mingle. It accumulates in the same places and, and mixes together um, with leaf litter, uh, with branches, with kind of like natural debris. And much of the trash is um, um, colonized by microbes. So, um, you know, whenever something falls into a aquatic environment, there's a community of microorganisms that starts to grow on the surface. Um, we call these biofilms. They're um, a collection of bacteria, algae, uh, fungi that, that just grow, and they're kind of slimy and just a natural part of um, uh, the ecology of aquatic ecosystems. And trash is just like any other surface um, in an aquatic environment when it comes to biofilm growth. So um, you might think um, you're looking at mud or maybe leaf litter, um, but in fact, um, it could be plastic or metal or, um, or fabric, kind of take on a green, slimy, kind of muddy look. And so it requires a little bit of investigation and careful attention to detail when you're collecting litter because of that kind of disguise. What, um, what happens to the local ecology of a, you know, of a river? It's kind of interesting, I guess, because the water is always flowing. So I would think downstream of litter is the real impact. You know, I guess the, the materials that come off a piece of litter, the plastics that go into the water, the, you know, the other components, it's like a continual downstream effect. And I guess as the litter bumps downwards, you know, different parts of the stream are affected differently. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's something we're also um, working on measuring. Um, because litter comes in in all different shapes and sizes and is um, all different kinds of materials, it breaks down in different ways. Um, so, for example, we find uh, a lot of glass. Um, these are, are largely bottles. Um, we find a lot of glass bottles in streams when they're in parks and um, near roads. Presumably, this is people littering when they're just kind of nearby the river. And uh, we, we find many of these bottles that are intact, but we also find a lot of pieces of broken glass. Um, obviously, the glass can be broken when it, when it enters the stream, but also just as things kind of move around in a river, the glass breaks. And so we find lots of um, shards. Um, but when it comes to biological interactions, you know, we're not all that concerned about glass. Uh, I'm sure someone might get cut or someone might get hurt if they encounter a piece of broken glass, but but largely it's pretty inert, meaning um, there aren't a lot of chemicals associated with glass. There aren't um, really any animals that'll try to ingest it. Um, by contrast, we find a lot of plastic in the rivers as well. And um, while plastic is made of lots of different kinds of, um, of chemicals um, and is relatively inert, plastic does break down over time. Um, Plastic will tear, it will kind of shred, it, um, it becomes brittle, it's ex is exposed to sunlight, and there is a little bit of biological breakdown, um, bacteria that can, that can break down plastic. So, so plastic does break down into smaller pieces, and um, when plastic is very small, and when it's colonized by biofilms, by the microorganisms that live on the surface, 
Um, then we are concerned about how plastic might interact with living things in the environment. Um, we have documented ingestion of these small plastic particles by fish and by invertebrates um, and birds. So once organisms are eating plastic, we're a little less certain what it might be doing to them. It could um, block their digestive tract. It could um, uh, leach chemicals into their digestive system um, or even sort of make make them feel full when they, um, when they aren't. So, so litter is a, a really complex mixture of materials, some of which we think are more dangerous than others. And as it comes to breakdown of trash and transport of trash from upstream to downstream locations, one of the most concerned about is plastic. Well, in terms of uh, effluence, it seems like uh, if you sample a stream at the bottom and you see a certain concentration, you can back your way up maybe in increments of, uh, you know, let's say a mile or a hundred miles, and you could see where the signal stops and then kind of triangulate where in a river, you know, uh, a certain contaminant might be and then take it out. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what you're referring to in that case is like a point source. Um, so this is where we try to identify a, a kind of discrete location where litter or any other pollutant is entering a river. Um, and this is useful in some cases where we um, understand litter to be entering um, a river in kind of a, uh, a concentrated fashion over a small geographic space. So one of those um, might be, for example, a wastewater treatment plant. So we've done some work in wastewater treatment plants um, where we've looked at uh, litter that's coming into treatment plants, um, which includes uh, raw sewage, but also it includes, um, at least in our area in Chicago, it includes the street sewers as well. So we know there's trash, there's a lot of particles that get into the um, sewer system. Some of those enter the wastewater treatment plant. Some of those are removed in the wastewater treatment plant. But we do find that wastewater treatment plant effluent pipes are sources of small pieces of plastic to the river. Um, and so we've done just what you're saying. Look um, uh, at a river, look kind of along the length uh, sample, in this case, small pieces of plastic over multiple places and try to isolate the point source. Um, and so that's been a fruitful um, approach to look for one source of microplastic or, or small plastic particles to the river. Um, one of the challenges, though, is that when it comes to litter, um, small plastic and other kinds of litter included, there are uh, many, some of which are point sources, but others are what we call um, non-point sources. And um, these are a little bit more hard, a little bit more challenging to isolate. Um, so I can give you an example of a non-point source for um, litter. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And one of those is from the atmosphere. So we don't always think about um, dust outside. But, there, you know, we have dust inside, we have dust outside. And um, in the dust, both in, in someone's home or in a building, there's lots of small suspended particles, um, pollen, small pieces of plants, um, uh, uh, dust, like kind of sand grains. And also there's small pieces of plastic in the air. And so the plastic in the air is settling out just like it does for um, pollen or other particles. And so because um, plastic is coming down onto the landscape from the air, it's much harder to isolate a source of plastic um, like that because it's so diffuse and it's really spread out over a large geographic area. 
is there a technology where you can cordon off part of the river temporarily so that the water will recede from that part? You can get to the bottom and, you know, maybe take a piece of debris out and then you open it back up and now the river flows normally again, you know, like a partial, a partial dam system or partial diversion system. I don't know any technology like that um, other than an actual um, dam. You know that um, someone might be regulating for hydroelectric purposes, um, but when it comes to um, you know river ecology or, or ecologists out working in a river, we don't we don't have access to that kind of um, sampling device. No. Is there is there any technology that can um, you know uh, create a three D rendering of the river, like a cross section of it, how deep it is, and and what it looks like, you know, longitudinally along the length of a river? Has anyone been able to do that? Yes, yeah, that technology exists. Um, so there are um, imaging devices. Um, the the one that people are probably familiar with is the fish finders. You know, if um, if you know someone who's really really into fish, they purchase these devices called fish finders, um, and they use sonar and other kinds of imaging to try to detect what's going on underwater. Um, there's more sophisticated ones for mapping. Um, if you would want to map the bottom of a river or um, understand how the, uh, the flow, that, like the speed of the water is changing with depth. Um, there, yeah, certainly is a lot of equipment to take those measurements. So, I mean, what are you trying to get at then? Are you, uh, you're trying to figure out what happens to trash once it's in a river? And then what, uh, you know, what would be an intervention strategy or are you still not there yet? Is it more in the understanding phase? Like what, the, what big questions are you trying to answer with your research? Yeah, I mean, both of those things are ongoing at the same time. So the large questions we're trying to answer are what are the sources, um, what's the fate, and what's the biological interactions of trash in these uh, freshwater environments. And so our hope is that by understanding the sources, by um, understanding the fate and the the way in which litter interacts with living things, we can come up with um, uh, some ideas about how to mitigate or reduce the amount of litter that gets into the environment understand which kinds of litter might be most dangerous for uh, aquatic life, and then understand how we can prevent that litter from going into our oceans. So I feel like each of those components address um, our ultimate goal, which is really to contribute to solutions that make the environment cleaner um, and healthier. And so I can give you an example of, of how that's worked. Um, in one of our projects, we've been, we've been working with a nonprofit group called the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Um, they're a large nonprofit agency that does a lot of advocacy for clean water in the Great Lakes. And one of the programs that they run is called Adopt-A-Beach. And their Adopt-A-Beach program has been going on for 15 or 20 years. And in this program, they have volunteers go out and pick up trash on the beaches um, throughout the Great Lakes. And one of the nice things about that uh, program is they've had the volunteers write down what they find. So there's a tally sheet that the volunteers are filling out and they tally the, all the litter that they pick up. And they've been doing this for so long and recording the results that there's a, a really large data set of trash on our Great Lakes beaches that, we can, that we've been analyzing to try to figure out um, these same questions. What are the sources? How much is out there? And what might be most dangerous? And so we've been um, working with them to analyze this large data set. And we've got um, a number of different projects ongoing to address the, the information embedded in there. One of them that I think is really fascinating and speaks to your question is we're able to look at um, the composition of trash on the beaches. One of the items we find is most abundant is cigarette butts. It's a very common 
trash item on um, ocean beaches, on our Great Lake beaches. Um, it's just uh, something people like to do on the beach and then they leave the cigarette butts there. And because this program has been going on for so long, we've been able to determine what the year-on-year um, -year trends are in trash. And one of the strongest um, temporal trends that we see is a decrease in cigarette butts on the Great Lakes beaches from a period of about 2003 up until 2019. Um, consistently, the amount of cigarette butts is going down on lots of different beaches um, throughout the Great Lakes. And this is um, the same pattern that is observed with smoking rates. Um, so there's less people smoking over this time. Um, and the same pattern that's observed with um, improvements as in public health as it relates to lung cancer. So because we have this really large data set, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteers picking up trash um, and doing it over many years. We're able to document this um, trend in litter abundance. And it's a positive one. Um, and our question is, well, why, why are cigarette um, butts declining on the beaches? It's because of um, many, many different policies. Um, uh, smoking has been banned in uh, public settings. Period. Um, in Chicago, the smoking on the beaches was banned in 2008. There's a really large, you know, public education and public health movement to try to um, discourage people from smoking. All of these things were effective in reducing smoking rates. And we can also show that there's an environmental benefit, that we have less litter on the beaches. Any other uh, interesting trends in, in litter, you know, things that are increasing so, the past few years? Like, <laughs> I went on for a minute. Um, I think that this makes is that by understanding the composition of trash on our freshwater ecosystems, um, we are in a better position to understand how public policy, how um, human behavior, how environmental um, kind of management, how all of these techniques can be kind of brought to bear to try to reduce litter. And in our case, um, with the cigarette butt example, the intention was to reduce smoking for public health benefits, and that was effective. Um, but also, we can demonstrate that these kinds of actions have environmental benefit. But without these really large data sets and without getting out, you know, on foot and measuring what kinds of litter uh, we're finding, we're not in a position to help inform those decisions or help inform how effective those decisions are. And that's what we want to be able to. It makes sense. What what kinds of litter have you seen uh, are innocuous when you think they might be harmful and, and vice versa? Which which kinds of litter, uh, you know, seem to be really bad for the, the rivers and the fish and the other life? Um, well, to answer the second part of your question, we're, um, we're trying to understand um, and, and kind of prioritize what types of litter we might, we think might be most dangerous. Um, and from the perspective of public health and from uh, the perspective of environmental health, we're really concerned about the litter that's generated by um, sewage overflows. Um, so many cities uh, around the U.S. have combined sewers, meaning the street sewers and the sanitary sewers go into the same pipe, and that pipe goes to a wastewater treatment plant. And that works fine most of the time, but when it rains, there's too much um, uh, street sewer water to um, fit into the pipes. And so we have what's called um, a combined sewer overflow. And this means during periods of heavy rain that there's raw sewage going into um, the river. And so this is what we are worried about because that raw sewage contains um, obviously disease causing microorganisms. Um, and it contains, unfortunately, um, uh, litter that's related um, to hygiene. 
So in our, in our case, in the Chicago River, we take these measurements um, repeatedly and we have fairly regular combined sewer overflow events. And so we have put it together that um, after heavy rain events where we have the sewers overflow, we see um, hygiene products. Um, so these would be related to, to feminine hygiene, to um, uh, wipes, like toilet wipes, and also um, condoms. We see these in the river and they've come directly from the sewers. And so we're, we're concerned that um, they could be con uh, uh, have bodily fluids, have um, microorganisms that might be disease-causing, both for people um, and wildlife. Um, we haven't taken those measurements, but we can infer that from um, kind of common sense. And we want to understand um, just how much material is coming out of our sewers so that we can inform um, the benefit of improvements to our sewage infrastructure as it relates to trash in the rivers. Well, very good. Um, Tim, what do you think the future of the analysis of this trash will be? You said it'll help, um, you know, governments make more informed decisions. But where do you think this is going? Like, uh, you know, as this river surveillance increases and hopefully becomes more pervasive, what do you think it'll lead to? Well, ultimately, I hope that we lead to, uh, or at least inform, um, any of the kinds of improvements that might be directly um, uh, related to waste management and, uh, in particular, plastic litter sources from uh, from urban environments. Um, you know, uh, what we really want to be able to do is to have an understanding of what kinds of litter are in the rivers. And so that if, if there is um, a type of litter that we find that's really abundant and there's a policy that comes along to change that litter, we're in a position to measure how effective that policy is. So for example, in Chicago, as in many other cities, there are, um, there's a lot of debate about um, uh, uh, single-use plastic. Um, these are all the kinds of plastic, like plastic bags, styrofoam containers, cutlery, um, that are used as carded. In many places, um, especially cities, there's uh, bans in place on plastic bags, on styrofoam containers, and that kind of thing is in discussion in Chicago. So, so we've been measuring how much of that kind of litter is in our waterways. We can, and I've met with some of the um, county commissioners that are um, uh, kind of debating these policies to determine how effective they might be. And should those policies be passed, will it be in a position to directly measure their impact? And I think, you know, with that kind of careful um, empirical approach, we can really, um, you know, make the best decisions and understand um, how effective our decisions are as it relates to public, public policy for plastic um, and also environmental health. Okay. Well, very good, Tim. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, what's the best way people to find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, they can just search my name, um, Tim Holine. It's H-O-E-L-I-N, um, Plastic and Rivers. There's there's a lot of people doing this work, both um, in the U.S. and internationally. Um, so happy to connect them with my work, with other people's work, if they're interested in, in understanding what we do. Well, very good. Thanks again for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.